Well, as the ushers are coming by, I want you to find your Bibles and I want you to turn to the book of Genesis. I want you to find chapter 45 and kind of put your thumb there or put your little ribbon in your Bible there and then turn back to chapter 37 because we're going to cover some ground in just a moment. Our topic this Advent season is our longings and how those can only be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. And so we opened up a couple of weeks ago, our first Sunday of Advent, with looking at the longing for meaning. Last week, we looked at our longing for control. This Sunday, we look at our longing for relationship, specifically for relationships to be reconciled and restored. There's an old Johnny Carson joke, if you're familiar with the old comedian, Or he used to say, the holidays are the time of year, the only time of year that we see our family. And then we remember why the holidays are the only time of year we see our family. The point being is is that sometimes our relationships with our biological family, our extended family, well, those are difficult. As a matter of fact, Forbes magazine in a 2019 article listed the fact that if you ask people on a survey if their families are dysfunctional, between 70 and 80% of people in our country will tell you that they are. That's an astounding number. That somewhere between 7 and 8 out of 10 of our families will tell you, hey, our family is full of dysfunction. Violence, abuse, neglect, the inability to give and receive love, addiction issues, boundary issues... No matter what the cause, the outcome is, is the breakdown of those relationships and often guilt and shame and pain that lasts a lifetime. Consider this. The article says that 10% of mothers in America are estranged from at least one of their adult children. 40% of people on the survey said that at some point in their life, they have been estranged from a sibling or from a parent. That's four out of 10 of us. To illustrate the point, I was texting with a friend recently, just catching up, and I said, hey man, how do I pray for you this season? Here's what he texted back. Pray my family will get through Christmas without killing each other. My family already didn't get along, but now disagreements over things like masks and vaccinations are ripping us apart. It's tragic, and it's sad, and it's understandable while the little song, I'll Be Home for Christmas, plays on the radio, a lot of us say, only in my dreams. You see, we all experience the pain of broken relationships. And so it might surprise you to discover that some of the most dysfunctional relationships that we know about are actually found in the families of the Bible. You see, there's a temptation for us to think that, man, they had it right, right, back in the good old days, right, in the biblical days. But when you really lean into the biblical story, you will discover story after story of dysfunctional families. I mean, these are families that put the word fun in dysfunction. For example, anybody ever heard of the nation of Israel? Yeah? Do you know how it began? How messy it was? The house of Jacob, the man who would be renamed Israel, and his 12 son was an abject, dysfunctional, total mess. And yet God worked in the context of that family to bring about his purposes. Today we're going to focus on a biblical story, the story of Joseph. No, not the story of the adoptive father, right, of baby Jesus. This is the story of Joseph In Genesis, one of the patriarchs. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, and then you have Joseph. And we're going to see how God worked in the middle of that mess to bring about his purposes. And usually at this point in the message, I have you guys stand and we read. 
But instead, because we're looking at chapter 45, I want to build the story first. I want to remind you of one of the greatest stories that there is. And so we're going to walk through the story, and then I'm going to have you stand a little later as we get to that part of the story to illustrate how we need to take this journey with Joseph, because this really is, I think, one of the greatest stories of all time. So in your Bibles, look at chapter 37. Beginning in verse 1, it signals to us, the author of Genesis, right, that we are entering a new phase of the story. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. So we are about to get the story of Jacob's family tree, of his sons and what happened with them. The Bible uses that intentionally in the book of Genesis to signal a new stage. So act one of our story this morning is this. The house of Jacob is a dysfunctional mess that results in Joseph's betrayal by his own brothers. We read, this is the story of the line of Jacob. Well, that signals to all of us as Bible students that we need to pay attention to what happened before. Because all of us, just like Joseph, were born and we enter a story that is already happening. And I want you to think about this. We're going to spend some time walking through this story. This is what we would present as if it was a, you know, a play or a movie, right? This is front stage. We're going to talk about the events that took place. But I want you to pay careful attention to what God is doing on what we would call the backstage. How God is orchestrating events. How God is in the work of these circumstances. So we know a few things about Jacob. We know that he was the son of Isaac. We know that he had an older brother, Esau. They were twins. And literally from the moment they left their mother's womb, right, Jacob was grasping at Esau's heel. He was trying to get one up in the world. The name Jacob literally means deceiver. And so from the very beginning of Jacob's life, he was trying to make a name for himself. He was trying to build himself up. His father preferred Esau. Esau was the hunter. He was the tough, rugged guy. And so Isaac preferred Esau. Rebekah, his mom, preferred him. And so Joseph was the OG mama's boy, right? The original mama's boy. And that marked him for life, that kind of favoritism. Throughout his life, Jacob was scheming. He was contriving. He had a famous dream, we call it Jacob's Ladder, in which God appeared to him and basically said, hey, I'm going to make the same promise I made to your dad and to your grandpa. I am going to work through your life. And God did a couple of very important things in Jacob's life as he continued to literally wrestle with God. One is he gave him a new name. He gave him a new identity. God said, your name will be Israel. That means one who prevails. And in that same wrestling match with God, God touched his hip. So Jacob would literally walk with a limp the rest of his life, remembering that he had been marked by God. It would be in every day, every time he got up from the table, every time he went anywhere, he would be reminded, right? That he had had an encounter with God. And yet, We find those patterns hard to break. In the story that we're about to look at, 31 times his old name, Jacob, is used. 20 times his new name, Israel, is used. That means that this was a guy struggling with his identity. And if you're struggling with your identity as an adult, the best thing to do is have children, right? And that's what Jacob did. He had a lot of children by several wives and women. And so, of course, favoritism, he was favored. Guess what? That plays itself out in the next generation in Jacob's life as well. Because he had a son, one of his 12 sons was named Joseph. And Joseph was the oldest son of his favorite wife. 
And so, as the story would play itself out, we see that Joseph introduces himself to us. We're introduced to Joseph in the story in the very next verse. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now, I want you to imagine yourself at 17 years old. You had it all together, didn't you? You had it all figured out. You wanted your freedom. You knew how the world worked. And especially if you were now daddy's favorite, daddy's boy, you figured that you had it pretty good. I'm reminded of the famous quote by Mark Twain, who said, when I was 16, my dad was an idiot. By the time I was 21, my dad was a genius. It's just amazing how much my father learned in five years. You see, when we're that age, we think we have it all figured out, but we don't. And so what's the first report we get about Joseph? He tattles on his older brothers. And he doesn't just have a couple older brothers. He has like 10 of them at this point. He has one younger brother, Benjamin. We'll meet him a little later in the story. But at this point, we begin to understand that there is no shalom. There is no peace in the house of Jacob. The brothers are contentious with each other. And so we know that the next thing that Jacob does is he bequeaths, he gives to Joseph a robe. It's a robe of many colors. It would have been rare, expensive in that day. The word in the Hebrew means it's, it's got shades of royalty attached to it. So it was like a robe fit for a king. And this isn't given to the oldest brother who would always expect it in that culture. If you were going to have any honor, it went to the oldest brother first. Instead, he skipped over all the brothers and he gave it to Joseph. And so this doesn't please the brothers. Joseph is famous, of course, for his dreams. And he has some dreams, and he just happens to tell his brothers about those dreams. Those dreams, his brothers, and his mother and his father basically bow down to him. How do you think that plays with the older brothers? Not very well. And so one day they're out doing their thing. They're about 60 miles from their hometown. They're in the city of Dothan. Not the city in lower Alabama, L.A., but rather the ancient city. It was by what was called the Via Maris, a key trading route in the ancient Middle East. They're taking care of their flocks. And so Jacob sends Joseph on an assignment. Hey, go check on the boys. See how they're doing for me. And so 60 miles from home, Joseph approaches. Brothers are filled with rage, jealousy, and they're like, this is our shot. This is our opportunity to do something about it. Let's kill him. Let's just be done with the dreamer once and for all. Let's crush the dreams. Let's take the place in the family that's rightfully ours. And so they devise a scheme to kill him. But when the moment comes, they chicken out a little bit. And instead they decide to throw him in a cistern or a well that's empty. They strip him of his robe. And the text says they sit down for a meal like all guys do, right? So you do something diabolical and you sit down to a plate of chicken wings. I mean, it's just what you do if you're a villain in a story. So lo and behold, some Ishmaelites are passing by on the Via Maris. And so they come up with an idea. Hey, you know what? We could actually make a little money. Instead of just killing the guys and having some you know, blood guilt on our hands, let's just become human traffickers instead. And so they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. And then we pick up the story in chapter 39, where it says, now Joseph had been taken literally in the Hebrew, brought down to Egypt. At this point, we find that Joseph has been humbled in every way. 
He went from being daddy's favorite to being a slave. He's gone from having a royal robe to being stripped to practically nothing. He has been taken from his homeland to a pagan land where he is going to have to serve as a slave. The brothers come back and report to Jacob. He's died. He was killed by a wild animal. They kill a goat. They put the blood all over the robe. They show it to Jacob as proof. Ironically, Jacob had deceived his father with a goat skin, with the blood of a goat as well. You see, dads, our sins are revisited in the next generation. Our kids learn by watching us. And so in this moment, of course, Jacob is heartbroken. He thinks his favorite son is dead. At this moment, right, the dream is over. The brothers have guilt on their hand. Their family is a total disaster. All of our families, if we're honest, have what we would call skeletons in the closet. These brothers literally do. Because for all they know, right, Joseph's going to die in slavery. And so they hope the dream is dead. The story is over. Or is it? Jacob thinks he's dead. But we know the story is just continuing in Egypt. And that leads us to act two of the story. Here we find in Egypt a surprising turn in the character of Joseph. Through the adversity, through the suffering, at some point he comes to himself And we find him from this moment on in the story, loyal in duty. He's going to be strong in temptation. He's going to be faithful in hardship. His brothers wanted to forget all about him, but God had not. Look with me again at chapter 39, verse 2, because this is key. The narrator tells us, the Lord, Yahweh himself, was with Joseph. And he became a successful man serving in the household of an Egyptian minister. So he is sold into the household of Potiphar, where he becomes one of his servants there. Right away, Potiphar notices there is something unusual about this young man. We know, as we're going to see, he's talented. We know that he's handsome. The text tells us that. But most importantly, God is with him. God's hand is on him. So it's not long until Joseph is elevated as the key servant in charge of Potiphar's household, who is a high-ranking Egyptian official. But Potiphar is not the only one who thinks highly of Joseph. Because Joseph is handsome, he catches the eye of Potiphar's wife as well, who tries to repeatedly seduce him. Now the text tells us that Joseph is handsome. The text doesn't say anything about the looks of Potiphar's wife. Draw your own conclusions. But the point is, Joseph does the right thing. Instead of sleeping his way to the top, he intentionally resists temptation over and over again until Potiphar's wife basically entraps him, grabs his robe one day, he flees the scene, she uses that robe as evidence that he tried to come in and have his way with her, and so she reports that to, to Potiphar, and of course Potiphar's outraged, and so he throws Potiphar in prison, and once again we find Joseph where? In the dungeon, in the dark. And this moment's hard for us as a modern audience. Because we want to say, Joseph did the right thing. And every time we do the right thing, it's going to turn out well for us, right? Wrong. Because life's not what, church? Fair. We live in a broken world. And so Joseph, again, finds himself forgotten and in the pit. But the narrator wants us to know something. Look at chapter 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison. 
and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything he did successful. Now, who made Joseph successful? The Lord. It's evidence. But clearly, Joseph, right, was a model prisoner. And it didn't take much time until he earned the respect of the prison warden. And so God does nothing by accident. And so lo and behold, two of the Pharaoh's officials themselves, the cupbearer and the baker, end up in prison. And Joseph is responsible for them. Now, in those days, those two people attended to the Pharaoh. They served him his food. They served him his drink. And so they were very, very important court officials. They're in that moment, they're in prison, and guess what happens? They have dreams. Now, we don't know exactly why they were in prison. Maybe the cupbearer served Pharaoh his coffee cold. Maybe the baker didn't put enough sprinkles on the Pharaoh's cupcake. Maybe they were plotting a coup. We don't know what was taking place. But we know this. They landed under Joseph's sphere of influence. And there, Joseph is able, with God's help, to interpret their dreams. And things play out exactly as Joseph Sees. And so the baker is executed for his crimes against Pharaoh, for his treason. The cupbearer, however, is elevated back to the right hand of the king, of the Pharaoh. And so Joseph makes one little request to the cupbearer. He's like, hey, don't forget me. Don't forget how kind I was to you in prison. Don't forget that I gave you this good news. Just mention me to Pharaoh and my situation. And what does the cupbearer do? He forgets. He lets Joseph down. And again, we find ourselves in the story saying, oh, because that's the hardest part for us, isn't it? The waiting, when we feel like we're forgotten. It's one thing to be betrayed, but when you've done your part and you feel like you're just sitting around twiddling your thumbs, waiting on God to act, that's hard for us. It's why we call this season that we're in Advent, because it means waiting. It's a reminder to us that God's people had to wait for him to fulfill his promise of sending the Messiah. It's a reminder that in our generation, we are waiting for God to fulfill all of his promises in the second coming. And it's difficult to be in this moment in the waiting. But God's timing is always perfect. And after two years of waiting, Pharaoh himself begins to have dreams, dreams that he doesn't understand. And one day, two years later, the cupbearer is like, Oh yeah, there's, there's a guy who's pretty good at this dream interpretation thing. He's running one of your jails. And so they go and they get Joseph. And I love the boldness that Joseph has developed in his faith. What he shares with Pharaoh, chapter 41, verse 16. Pharaoh basically says, I've heard of your reputation. You're going to interpret these dreams for me. And Joseph says this, I am not able to. And at that moment, I'm sure Pharaoh is about to get mad. But Joseph answered, It is God himself who will give Pharaoh an honorable answer. And what a man of faith to be so bold to say, I don't have the answers, but I serve the God who does. And sure enough, Pharaoh shares his dreams. Seven skinny cows come out of the Nile and devour seven fat cows. Seven puny stalks of grain devour seven healthy stalks of grain. What can this mean? God gives Joseph the interpretation. We've got some years of much, years of plenty, but they're going to be followed by years of famine, Pharaoh. So we better get ready. 
Joseph already has the plan. Hey, Pharaoh, you need to import, you need to employ a trustworthy man to oversee this process, to be sure that we store up enough grain, to be sure that we're ready. Pharaoh, a pagan king, look with me at verse 37, says this, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And he said to them, can we find anyone like this? A man who has God's spirit in him. Do you realize the weight of those words? That a pagan king who thought he was a God himself looked at Joseph and his faithfulness and said, God's spirit is in this man. Here's what it means to me. No matter the powers that be, no matter what's in this world, the power of God's spirit is always greater. And even those far from God recognize his hand when it's at work. That's what Pharaoh sees in the life of Joseph. And so he elevates Joseph. He elevates him to the position of what we would call prime minister today. Basically, Joseph is gone from being betrayed to his brothers, to being thrown unjustly in prison, to now being elevated to being the second most powerful man in that part of the world at that time. Joseph enacts the plan. He not only saves Egypt, but he saves the surrounding areas as well. The nations who have to come to Egypt because they don't have any food. In honor of him, Pharaoh gives him a signet ring, gives him a royal robe, gives him a position of honor and power. He gives him an entourage. He gives him his own motorcade in the form of chariots. He receives a wife from a priestly family. God blesses them with a couple of boys. And if the song was around, I'm sure Joseph would have sang, how do you like me now? (laughs) And so for us, we're like, man, what a great story. Man, God took this guy and he elevated him, fed the world, saved the world. What a good thing to do. And yet here's what's interesting as I was rereading the story this week. The story's not over, is it? As a matter of fact, in the Bible, only half a chapter is devoted to Joseph becoming the second most powerful man in the world. Do you realize the book of Genesis isn't over? Chapters 42 through 50, eight chapters will now be devoted to the rest of the story, which is the hard work of Joseph being reconciled to his family. What does God care about? God cares about relationships. God cares about his people. God cares about our hearts. And that leads us to act three. And act three is this, is that God orchestrates a reunion between Joseph and his family that reveals God's heart for reconciliation. And so, of course, the famine hits Canaan as well. The narrator puts our attention right back on Jacob and the boys, and they ain't doing so well. They are riddled with guilt. They are struggling in Canaan. There is Benjamin, who is Jacob's youngest, and Jacob is clearly still grieving the loss of Joseph because he won't let Benjamin go anywhere without his eye being on him. Translation, Jacob was the world's first helicopter parent. And so he sends his other sons to Egypt to buy grain. And so they show up and they're ushered into the presence of who? Joseph. They bow down to Joseph. Hmm, who had a dream about that before? They don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph knows it's them. And so he devises a little plan. At first, he's a little little harsh with them in his words. 
But then he begins to realize he has an opportunity here. And so he tells them, you guys are spies. And so I'm going to arrest one of the brothers. You go back to your homeland. If you've got another brother, you bring them here. You bring all the family here and maybe I'll let your brother go. And so Simeon is arrested. The other brothers go crawling home. They tell Jacob what happened. It's not very much longer until they run out of grain again. Their only choice to eat, to survive is to go back to Egypt a second time. But the boys are clear. We've got to take Benjamin with us, dad. And so Jacob, still in the middle of his grief, agrees to let Benjamin go, terrified about what would happen. You see, at this point, everybody in the story is held captive to their past. Everybody is dealing with something. Jacob with his grief, the brothers with their guilt. Joseph, what do I do now? It's a classic opportunity for revenge for him. How does he handle it? What does he do? Well, the brothers show back up. And to their surprise, what Joseph has done, and the narrator helps us to see this, he's really set up a number of tests for the brothers. Test number one was this. Would you come back for a brother? He was abandoned. Are they going to come back for Simeon? They do. They pass test number one. Now they needed some food as well, but they do show back up. Test number two, he sets up this elaborate feast for them when they return. In a shocking twist of events to them, he seats the brothers at this banquet in their birth order. Why was this so shocking to them? Well, the chances of that happening at random are, get this, 1 in 39,917,000. Something's up here. And at that banquet, he gives his younger brother Benjamin five times the amount of food and drink that he gives to the others. See, this is test number two. What's going to happen when I play favorites? The brothers don't seem to bat an eye. So here comes test number three, and this is the big one. He sends them home with their grain, with their money. But in Benjamin's bag, Joseph has his servant sneak his royal silver cup. Now, we can't totally be sure of this, but archaeologists think that this might have been the world's first Yeti travel tumbler. (laughs) And so he puts it in Benjamin's bag. He lets them get a few miles out of town, sends his guards after them to search the bags. Sure enough, they discover the cup. What's going to take place? How are the brothers going to react? Are they going to say, Benjamin, so long, see you. We're going back to Canaan with our food. Instead, Judah, the one whose idea it was to throw Joseph in the pit in the first place, steps up and says, we can't do this to our dad. He'll die of a broken heart. I'll be the substitute execute me for crimes against the household of Joseph. And that's the moment we come to when we get to chapter 45. Now I want you to put yourself in the shoes or maybe better yet, the sandals of Joseph at this moment. Think about the emotions that are inside of Joseph. For years, 20 years, he has been dealt with unjustly. He has been human trafficked. He has been sold into slavery. He has been unjustly accused. He's been thrown in prison. He's had moments when he wondered if God had forgotten him. Just think of how many birthdays, anniversaries, family feasts that he has missed out on. His brothers never came searching for him. His brothers never admitted to their guilt and said, we've done wrong. We need to go find Joseph and bring him home. All of this time, that anger and resentment, much like the anger and resentment in our hearts, builds. It would have been easy for him at this point to say, I've been working 100 hours a week 
to run this country, to be sure that our people are fed, to be sure the whole world is fed. I've got a wife who's never met her father-in-law. I have two sons who have never met their grandfather. I am the only God-fearer in this pagan land, holding on to the faith that I have. And here you show up, wanting a little grain. You see, this is the point in the story when we have to ask, what is going to reign and rule in the heart of Joseph? Is it going to be bitterness Or is it going to be grace? Is it going to be revenge? Or is it going to be love? Now stand with me in honor of God's word as we read what happens in Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 8. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants, so he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it. And also Pharaoh's household heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over the land of Egypt. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, one of the great stories of all time. And it reveals your heart for reconciliation. So, Lord, would we too recognize that you can work in the mess of our relationships by the wonders of your mercy and grace. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Now, let me go ahead and read your mind. Some of you are like, Jay usually goes on like 20, 25 minutes after reading scripture. Should we buckle up? Like our stomachs are starting to growl. All right, let me, let me relieve your fears. All right. I wanted to build to that point because that's where the story takes us now. We're going to do the application. Remember I talked about front stage? Let's talk about backstage now. Listen to the words carefully that Joseph shares with his brother. Because application point for us in our relationships this Advent season, number one, is this. Come near. It's sin that separates us. But it's God's grace that brings us back together again. You see, it was sin, right? Jealousy, hatred that separated the brothers. But God orchestrated things in such a way by which he was gracious to Joseph. And to those of us who have received God's grace, we really have no choice but to be gracious to others. I'm sure Joseph recognized, had my life continued on the path that my father had charted out for me, I would probably still be a spoiled, entitled brat. But instead, God humbled me. And in the pit, In the jail cell, he revealed to me that it was only him and me. 
And so I love this phrase where he invites the brothers. Did you catch it? The first time he's like, I am Joseph. And he expects like this moment of like you know, repentance or whatever, maybe for the have a group hug. I don't know. But it says they were terrified of him. And he had to say it again. Come near. Our kids sang it over us earlier in worship. It's a Hebrew word. Emmanuel. It means what church? God with us. You see, God had to come near in the person of Jesus so that forgiveness would become a reality. You see, a lot of what we're searching for this time of year, you can't actually find under a Christmas tree, but you can find it at the foot of that tree, the foot of the cross. What we need is forgiveness. What we need is to be made new. And when Christ does that work in our own hearts, well, then it makes possible what seems impossible to us that we can extend grace to others, that instead of seeking revenge, we can seek their good. Because see, when we don't forgive, what we do in essence is, is we pull up our hands into a fist and it takes all of our emotional energy in order for us to just continuing, continue to be angry. And granted, sometimes people have done awful things to us. Yes, Joseph was a brat, but he didn't deserve to be murdered. He didn't deserve to be canceled. He didn't deserve to be human trafficked. And so these things had been done against him. But when we spend our whole lives being angry, we hold on to that brokenness. Instead, when God teaches us to forgive, we can release. And do you know what that means? God can put something greater, something else in our hands. And so Joseph had experienced that in his own life and in his own journey. And he's now able to tell his brothers, no, come here. Not so I can end you but so that I can be restored to you so that the relationship can move forward so that we can begin this process of restoration and healing and bringing our broken family back together again. Second takeaway is this, don't be afraid. He tells them in the words of the text, the CSB translation, right? It says, don't be angry with yourselves. It's a pretty remarkable thing for a guy who's experienced what Joseph has to say. Instead, he says, don't be angry with yourselves. Why? Because I see now God's hand. I see how God has been at work using me to save lives. Yes, the lives of the Egyptians. Yes, the lives of the other nations who have come to us for food, but also to save you, God's chosen people, to keep his plan and his purpose alive. You know, all throughout the Christmas narratives in the Bible, angels appear to people. To Joseph, what does the angel say? Don't be afraid. To Mary, what does the angel say? Don't be afraid. To the shepherds, just doing their job, and all of a sudden, the the holy host appears to them. Don't be afraid, right? God is at work. It's kind of like a tapestry. Anybody ever seen a tapestry before? These beautiful weavings in which a weaver is painting a picture, is making a picture in thread and in cloth, And if we see the backside of the tapestry, we just see colors and threads and frays. But when you turn around the tapestry, you see the picture. And what Joseph is saying is, is God's given me the ability to see the whole picture of what he's doing. So don't be afraid. So I know in these hard conversations, there's a lot of fear. I know there are years of animosity and pain in our dysfunctional family systems. 
And yet I believe with all of my heart when we're about the very business of God, God says, don't be afraid. I am with you. He sends his angel armies, the host, to be able to support us and strengthen us. I believe that God comes alongside of us when we do the difficult work of restoration and reconciliation. Don't be afraid, God's saying. I've got a bigger picture in mind than you ever dreamed. In our fractured, broken world, what happens when relationships are restored? What happens when relationships are healed? What happens when the world says those people used to hate each other and now they're a family again? What's the story? It points to the very hope of the gospel. And that leads us to to number three. I love this verse. Verse eight. Part of the reason I love it is we find that the word therefore is in the Old Testament as well. Therefore, Joseph says, it was not you who sent me here. What are the next two words, church? But God. Those are two incredible words all throughout scripture. But God, yeah, everything in the world should keep us apart. My friends, my families, they have done terrible things to me. My spouse, my kids, my employer, on and on it could go, right? I have no reason, no reason to want to be in a relationship with them, but God. It's a reminder of what Paul writes in Ephesians 2 about the gospel itself. That we were sinners, dead in our sins, lost in our trespasses. We were children under the very wrath of God. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive again in Christ Jesus. It is by grace that you have been saved. It's the gospel. But God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You see, Joseph, he could have chose to end the relationship by literally ending the people. He could have had his brothers killed. He had that much power, but he didn't. Instead, he chose the hard path of restoration and reconciliation. And in Joseph, I pray that you see and hear echoes of the Messiah that Joseph pointed to, that the Old Testament points us to, that Joseph in these ways becomes a picture of Jesus. The brothers bowed to him. At the name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Joseph, as the story moves forward, right, invites his family to find refuge, to become part of his family in his kingdom in Egypt. In the same way, Jesus invites us to his table to become part of his family, to be a part of his kingdom. Joseph had to suffer so that he could be exalted by God. Jesus came and suffered on a cross so that he would be exalted in the resurrection, so that his name would be the name above every name. You see, the first advent reminds us that Jesus made forgiveness possible. The second advent points to the hope that Jesus can make all things new. Would you bow your heads with me this morning as we come to this time of response? There is so much good stuff in this story. And I know most of you came in today probably hoping to hear a lighthearted Christmas message. But instead, we need to be confronted with the reality of our broken relationships and the reality that with God, those relationships have hope. Those relationships can be restored. Those relationships can be reconciled. One of the great truths of the Advent season is we're reminded that God did what seemed like the impossible. 
in sending the King, the Messiah, to save us. So now being rightfully reconciled to God, well, we have that same power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead at work by his spirit in us to be able to reconcile our relationships with others. So in this moment, what's the relationship that's broken that needs healed? What's the name that puts you on that edge of wanting revenge? Wanting to seek your own satisfaction. But that name that you know you need to forgive. And you need to let off your hook because God let you off of his. This Advent season, I pray that you'll have the courage to do what really needs to be done. Because God did what he needed to do in order to rightfully restore us and our sin and our rebellion to him. So with that, we can stand and sing words like all is well. Not because we're perfect, we're not. But we serve a sinless savior who enables us by his grace and his power to show mercy, to extend forgiveness, and to show kindness to others. Lord Jesus, thank you that I believe this old, old story, one of the greatest stories in the history of the world points us to your heart, your heart for restoration, your heart for reconciliation, your heart that in your kingdom, all relationships would be made new. Come, Lord Jesus, and make all well again. It's in your name we pray these things and all God's people said, amen. Stand with us as we sing this morning.